everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Oh, um, yesterday I got to drive a box truck around and it was the greatest thing ever. Like... I've never felt so powerful in my life. I'm sitting above everyone. I can cut them all off because they're scared of me. Uh. <laughs> so, so this is this is Lawson, who was a professional motorbike <laughs> racing dr- rider. Yeah, yeah. And the greatest drive of your life was a box truck. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, okay, it wasn't the greatest drive of my life, but it was amazing. I, I, oh, it was so much fun. Well, I hired a box truck yesterday because I was helping my friends move, and um, yeah, I was the I was the driver, and so we were going back and forward from like a storage container to a house, and got everything done yesterday. But yeah, just driving that truck around, I felt so. Now, if you really want to have powerful. fun, you should drive my truck. Oh, what like? Because it's got a box on the back. It's got a canopy on the back. You're talking about a be- your Bedford? Yeah, or? absolutely. 1960 model. Yeah. Crash gearbox. Yeah. Big old petrol motor. Yeah. Goes sixty k's on the freeway. No, isn't that what it does? Don't insult my truck. How fast does it go? Seventy. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot you. I forgot it departed a little bit from the nineteen ten or whatever. I wonder what the speed record in nineteen ten was. Probably faster than seventy k's an hour. Probably. It will do more than that. But when it's got the canopy on the back, which is kind of huge and it's just like dragging a parachute. Yeah, about eighty. Anything above eighty, and it's just. It's just very inefficient. She's struggling. She's struggling. Oh, that's so good. That you know, single, that single, that big single barrel, like inch and a half, you know, Stromberg carby that's sitting up there. It just struggles. Yeah. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. I was, I was doing my 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 reading this morning, doing my devotions. I decided I'm like, man, I should read one of the Gospels, and so I'm reading Mark at the moment. And uh, read a read a couple chapters, good stuff. And then I was like, "This is like inconsistent with the TV show The Chosen." Just, just oh, controversial statement going the, after the Chosen. The, the Chosen doesn't doesn't play out like this. Like, obviously, I've read the Gospels before, and then I've yes. watched The Chosen. Now I've come back to the Gospels, and I'm like, "Wait a minute! Like, <laughs> like this doesn't make sense." <laughs> So, anyways, um, no, I'm not going after the show. The chosen, the show, the chosen's a great show, but I'm like, wait, that doesn't. Anyways, just the, just the timing of how everything came together. Like in the book of Mark, it said that Jesus already had massive crowds following him around by the time that he was in Galilee. And there's the the scene in the chosen where they lower the person in through the roof. And it's like in that scene where they're like, oh, Jesus is doing crazy miracles. By that point, he he had crowds so big, according to the Bible that he couldn't even enter the towns. So, come on, Chosen. Get your head in the game, all right? <laughs> Anyways, let's have a look at some positively different news. All right, Lyle. I'm about to end, I'm about to end you. Okay. And, okay. and everything that right. you and every other hillbilly has ever said about electric vehicles. Every other hillbilly, right? Every <laughs> other hillbilly. You're calling me a hillbilly yeah, here I, on I, Faith I, FM Radio. Hey, you called yourself a hillbilly the other night. An ex-hillbilly. An ex-hillbilly. I'm, re- I'm a refined hillbilly. Yeah, a, a reformed hillbilly. No, a refined one, not reformed. <laughs> hey, look at that. You're still a hillbilly. <laughs> um, no, check it out. So, 
one of the biggest debates, right? And by the way, what have I said about electric cars? Well, okay, so basically the biggest debate and the biggest, um, well, now myth, as it's been proven to be incorrect, oh. that is spread about oh. electric vehicles is that ultimately comes- it's like, oh, but does it actually use less carbon emissions than, you know, an no, internal combustion? No, that's action? not what it, that's not the argument. The argument is, does it have a smaller global footprint? Yeah, but well, nonetheless, that is, that is exactly lithium. Yeah. Are you ready for this line? Nasty stuff. Okay. So using the life cycle assessment. Uh, the LCA or life cycle assessment, the measurement of every ounce of carbon created from the cradle to the grave of, um, of the vehicle, um, of the electric vehicles and the internal combustion vehicles mm-hmm. was measured. And an electric vehicle uses substantially less carbon. Yes. Then check I'm this. I'm not arguing. No, that. no, no. Check this out. Check this out. However, in the new LCA from the International Council of Clean Transportation, everything from the mining costs of the lithium mm. to make the batteries to transporting them across the world via a shipping container to the end of the life to the end of life burden of having to you know recycle all the parts and everything like that and even the current and perceived mix of energy generation in a given society was taken into account across the four dominant car markets Europe the US India and China and even uh, in the latter two which are the biggest burners of coal they found that EV Vehicles or electric vehicles are far more did sustainable. Did they take into account? Did they take into account? Come on now, the toxicity of all of that lithium that doesn't get recycled and goes into landfill. I literally just said to the end of life burden. They yes. took that into account as well. The, and, and it literally just said in your article that the end of life burden was the recycling of the components. I'm not talking about the one. No, it did. Recycled. No, I said that to abridge the article. It actually just says the end of life burden. Mm, I'm sus. You are sus because you're silly. All right, check this out. <laughs> check this out. Emissions over. This is this is a quote from the from the uh, from the summary. Emissions over the lifetime of of the average medium sized electric vehicle registered today are already lower than gasoline cars by. In Europe, 66 to 69%. In the United States, 60 to 68%. In China, 37 to 45%. And in India, 19 to 34%. Okay, well, here's another question then. What about, what about the supplies of lithium we have in the world uh, compared to the supplies of fossil fuels? Hmm. How long are we going, how long before we run out of lithium? I mean, that could happen very fast. How? We could, we, we've been using fossil fuels now for a very, very long time, and we have a long time to go with fossil fuels. How do we know that versus lithium? But lithium, we hardly got any lithium. Lithium is not made out of stuff created at the time of the flood. Lithium's just like one of those rare kind of things that floats around in the, in the earth. You know somewhere. what? I read an. Oh, I should have got I, this article. I have no idea what no, I'm talking about, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I know. I can tell. I can tell. Okay. <laughs> I was actually reading yesterday. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this article up right now because to answer that question, one of the biggest like problems with battery technology is the fact that, that it relies on lithium, right? Like that we can all, you know, because it's such a niche, um, such a niche like yes, element. I've dug up coal in my backyard. Have you ever dug up lithium? No. No. Yeah, like, I've, I've found coal in a you know I found coal. I can go down to the beach here and find coal on the beach. Yeah, I remember. I remember being in school and like we were. There's like a outside play area. This is when I was in primary school. There was like this outside play area that was like literally in the bush. Like you were just like running around trees Best in kind the of bush. Play area. It was it was really epic. It wasn't like you know after when I went to high school they just had like the oval and like Boring. an open area. No, but this school like backed onto the bush and so we'd run around in the bush and dude we'd find coal out there all the time. Yeah. Which is 
just pick up some coal and and throw it at each other. But oh, you check this out. Check <laughs> that was pretty. Yes. But then you come back after lunch and you like got black marks like <laughs> all over your body. Your uniforms just wrecked. Um, but check this out. Like unshrouded, finally. Um. After years of secret work, an energy startup in Massachusetts, it's, it's claiming in a few years it can produce, um, at scale, the battery you need to fully retire coal and natural gas. So check this out, right? So, so immediately skepticism sets in because it's like, oh, lithium isn't that abundant. That's what we use to make batteries. But they've come up with a new battery that runs on, get this, iron. It's made out of no way. iron. Iron. It's made out of iron, which is incredibly abundant. Iron, as in I R O N, or iron as in I O N. No, I R O N. Iron. <laughs> it runs out of iron, and essentially, what it does. This is how. This is really cool. They just basically like in this um, when you know things change state from say like a water to a gas or whatever. Like heaps of energy is released. Yes. So basically. What they do is they rust the iron, and in that changing of state, they capture the energy. Okay, but what level of efficiency of... I mean, is this running out? I mean, is it as efficient as an, as a lithium battery? Lithium well, batteries are ridiculously efficient. Well, this is the thing. This is early technology, and they're you know this is a startup, and they're making it, and it's like okay, well, this is just some randoms trying to capture attention by doing something that no one's ever done before, but it's actually you know not helpful. But dude, this is this has money being pumped in by the likes of Jeff Bezos, by like huge business people like across the world. You know, uh, petroleum com- companies from India, like all these people are pumping money into this because they believe it can work. Um, and that like at the moment, this is in like ultra prototype, um, you know, phases. But yeah, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, like all these huge billionaires are all pumping money into this because they believe that this is going to solve the problem. And, and it's an act of faith. Well, you know, from what I've seen in terms of technology, if you throw enough money at it, it'll eventually work. And if private people are willing to throw lots of money at it, then I, I'm assuming that it will eventually. <laughs> anyway, having said all of this, when have I ever been against electric cars? I love electric cars. I know, but, I want an but you're the car. one who always makes the one. And everyone, and including yourself, always makes uh, the point, well, what about the lithium battery? Yeah. Oh, what about all the carbon emissions? <laughs> Obviously, we love electric cars. You want cars to do something good fast. for the world, become a vegetarian. And then you've got your carbon offset to own your V8. <laughs> Problem solved. Right there. <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you, Lyle. Good points made here. But obviously, like all of this is good, you know, from the from the perspective of managing the planet, and yes. also I just want to drive electric cars because they're fast. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Let's talk then about some more serious news, and the very serious news coming out of Russia this morning mm. is uh, three Jehovah's Witnesses who have just been jailed for eight years. <laughs> It's a pretty oh, stiff sentence wow. right there. So this is Villain Avanesov, Avanesov, his son Arsen Avanesov. And so Villain is 68 years old, Arsen is 37 years old, and their friend Alexander Parkov, 53 years old. There's some kind of unfortunate names like that. That would paint a, if your name was Arsen yeah, and Villain. In Australia, you might uh, <laughs> change it a little bit. But anyway, whatever, yeah. that's, that's, that's their names. And yeah. this is the thing, Vladimir... He needs to figure out what is actually an extremist organisation, what is an organisation that's actually dangerous to his country. Because these guys are being treated like members of Al-Qaeda or members of um, ISIS or Mm. Hezbollah or something like this. You know, those are organisations that are terrorist organisations. Those are organisations that actually, you know, 
will kill people. Our Jehovah's Witness friends are like the friendliest people on the planet. I mean, they come and they knock on the door every now and then, and I don't have long conversations with them, but I always have really nice conversations. Mm. You know, I mean, they're like any church. They're going to have a few bad eggs. That's just the nature of anything that's run by human beings. But generally speaking, when I meet the friendly JWs from down the street, they're amazing people. Yeah. How are they going to be any kind of threat to the Russian state? Mm. Please explain that to me. Yeah. This is insanity and this is not justice, this is repression. Yeah, well. There's a difference between repression and justice. Okay, so these were, these, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses were banned in, in Russia. And what's happening is that there are lots of regions in, within Russia where the judicial system looks at the law and goes, no, that's ridiculous and mm. just ignores it. But then you have other regions where the judicial system is dominated by people of a different faith, mm. and they're like, yeah, we have the opportunity here. We can lock these guys up. You know what they were locked up for? What? Taking up an offering. Uh, because they were financing extremist activities. That is so bad. So they took up an offering to <laughs> uh, pay for the rent on a room that they had rented to uh, have a Bible study together, mm. and when they took up that offering, they were arrested for financing extremist activities. Wow. Uh, now, what you've got to understand is they got eight and a half years. One of them got eight, the other got eight and a half years, mm. right? Um, in Russia, you know how long you get for rape? How long? Three years. You know how long you get for kidnapping? How long? Five years. That's terrible. That's so, so, so bad. So Villain made this statement. Villain Avanesov, who's 68 years old, and you know he may die in jail Yeah, as a result of this. You know, mm. uh, He says, I dedicated my life to God and I did it sincerely. This is what he said in court. He says, I dedicated my life to God and I did it sincerely. I don't want, I can't and will not give up my promise. Yeah, wow. You know, that's a statement of faith. That's a mm. statement of courage. That is a statement of conviction right there. Mm. And while I don't agree with all of the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses, I do fully support the level of conviction that this person has yeah, well. and their interest in standing by their faith. Mm. You know, you can't fault that. Yeah. We need to pray for the Jehovah, our Jehovah's Witness friends in Russia at this time yeah, because 100%. they are suffering from just terrible persecution over there and, and we need to do whatever we can even here in this country to see what we can do about putting some pressure on yes mm. Russia okay so I moved from that story to a story in Canada and this one kind of sounds, sounds lame after the Russian one yeah uh, when like I, when cra- first, pretty I, gnarly things have been happening in Canada or surrounding churches at the moment yeah, yeah. this church just got fined eighty five thousand dollars um, and that's after that's their second fine. The first one was eighty three thousand dollars. So they've got what one hundred and sixty seventy thousand dollars worth of Debt fines. Fines. They've got to now pay. Yeah. Off. Why? Okay. So they're different from uh, Canada. Obviously different from the United States. In the, in the United States, you've got churches who have been consistently winning court cases based on the First Amendment mm. uh, to be able to keep their doors open during COVID. Yeah. You've got Canadian churches. They don't have the U.S. Constitution, but yeah. you have pastors who kind of act like they do have that Constitution, keep their doors open, and cop these kind of fines. Mm. Now, of course, since the uh, church has been closed, they've been meeting outside, and I don't understand why they haven't been meeting outside all along anyway. I don't understand why any church is closed during uh, during COVID. Well, I mean, in the big cities, I do understand it, like in Sydney and so forth, because 
you know, your opportunities for meeting outside may be limited, mm. but those opportunities remain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Meet outside. Do what's legal. Meet in the first church building that God ever made. Yeah, wow. But anyway, be that's made the, uh, the, the the church got fined thirty five thousand. The pastor copped ten k fine, and then the leaders copped seven and a half k fines each. So mm. um, they are unlikely to appeal this. And they have simply stated that Jesus is worth it, and that during COVID they have seen an increased uh, number of people attending church. They've had an increase in the number of people who have been giving their lives to Jesus Christ mm. and finding salvation, and that if it's going to cost them, you know, one hundred and sixty, hundred seventy thousand dollars for one person to be saved, then they're willing to pay that money. Wow! So once again, a statement of faith, but not on the level of. What's going on in Russia? Yeah, and it, it's a, like like you agree with the sentiment of faith, right? Like, yeah, I yeah, do. It's, I do. It's, it's worth like it's. But you have options. Yeah, this this is the biggest thing. Like, you don't have to do church one way. There are lots of different ways that you can do. Yeah. Op- do church. Why do we need to die on that hill? Why do Christians That's need right. to die on that hill? Like, particularly because we had the same thing happen in Australia. Like, a pastor got arrested in Melbourne for opening his doors during lockdown because he was like, you know what, this is. Ter- like this is silly. We're being oppressed. I'm opening my doors and we're going to run a service. But it's like. No, no, like the whole state is like locked down. Like, you don't have to have it inside. You don't go to the park. Go to the park, man. Come on. Well, that's what we're doing. Well, well, like we're allowed to go in the uni, but we're not allowed to have lunch in groups together. Yep. Like, because the room that we have in the uni, our capacity is thirty-seven. And literally last Sabbath, we had like thirty-seven people, uh-huh. and we were like, okay. Um, but then, yeah, we either get in groups of five to go to lunch, or we go to an outdoor area. That's right. And even, Problem solved. And even during when we had like lockdown where there is no people allowed, yeah, you just go outside. God blesses it. It's God's first church. <laughs> it's the first one he ever built. It's the, only, it's the only church that God ever built. Yeah, wow. All right, so I haven't talked about cats for a while, have I? Oh, we're going to drag cats again. <laughs> so this is an environmental story. Okay. <laughs> Because uh, hey, you get to tell environmental stories, which means that I get. To yeah, tell that's fine. That's stories. fine. Go for it. What do you think the cost over the last sixty years? Because it's been the last sixty years that we've really focused on dealing with uh, introduced species here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Before that, we kind of just let them run rampant. What do you reckon the cost to Australia has been uh, of cats? Nah, of, of introduced species. Um, managing introduced species. You know what? I'm just going to say a really high number so that whatever you says just seems. Dumb. Okay. So a, a trillion dollars. No, that's that's dumb. <laughs> you would be dumb. Uh, try a third of that. Uh, oh, three hundred and sixty billion. Okay, that's Over actually a, a lot. It is actually that a lot. is a, a massive that is number. Actually, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, spreads a lot across a multitude of different species. Mm. But of course, cats sit at the top at thirteen point five billion dollars. Now, this is not the cost to the environment. This is the cost of control. This is how much money uh, we have spent trying to control these particular oof. species. Uh, rabbits come in second at $2 billion. Really? It's a long way below cats. But, like, we created, like, a rabbit-proof fence and... We tried a lot of different stuff, but I guess the myxomatosis and Khaleesi viruses are... Much more cost-effective than anything we've come up with. Yeah, with wow. Think about fire ants at one point six billion, ryegrass at one point two billion, pigs at one billion, uh, Partheremium at one billion, and foxes at seven billion. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different.
going to go to our interview of the day right now. And uh, last time I we had it's been a, we've had a bit of a break uh, from having our resident historian on here. But last time I spoke to Eliza, she was Eliza Ma. Ooh! Now she is Eliza Southwell. Eliza, welcome to the show. It's great to be on, Lyle. Thank you very much. Especially, it's great to be on as Eliza Southwell. Yes, Wait, and uh, special congratulations. Is it your last name Southwell, Lyle? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> How did that happen? She married my son. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it is absolutely awesome. Eliza, uh, it's great to have you back on. Who are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Mary Raby, who... Um, you've probably never heard her name, but you've probably seen her face many, many thousands of times. Her face is on one side of the twenty dollar note. She was she earned a reputation as an astute and very successful businesswoman in the colony of New South Wales in the early eighteen hundreds, which was really interesting because she was a woman and we don't tend to think of women of that era being really successful business people. No, it's true. And the interesting thing about Mary Raby is that, yes, I've probably seen her face many, many, many times uh, on the $20 note. And I even lived in the Hawkesbury where, you know, she spent a lot Mm. of her time and started her business. And the whole time, and apparently her home is still there somewhere. But until you sent the name through and I started doing a bit of research, never heard of this person. Mm, yes. Well, it doesn't help that her name is her, her last name is spelled in all sorts of ways, and her first name she was christened Molly, not Mary. So she's a bit of an enigma, and she did try to hide her past. And so a lot of what we know about her, we're really just learning in the last you know, forty years or so. So she's a very, very curious lady. There's a lot more to her than meets the eye, especially when it comes to her childhood. Now, Mary Raby's parents died when she was very small, and she was raised by her grandmother. But by the time she was um, just approaching adolescence, her grandmother died. And her grandmother um, had arranged for her to go off to a, a school that would teach her how to be a domestic servant. So, like, basically like Tate, but she was 12. And... Um, she didn't like that very much. She was an enterprising woman in her adulthood, and so she was when she was a child. She was determined. She had a very strong personality, but she had no uh, parental guidance, and so she was really anxious as a child, and she made some bad decisions, as, you know, this is a story that we've heard over and over again. Um And for her, when she was 13 years old, she disguised herself as a boy and stole a horse. Now, the penalty for stealing a horse in England in 1790 was death. She was 13 years old. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, you've got to be, that's some major risk taking right there uh, for Mm. a 13 year old girl. So Absolutely. how did she escape death? I mean, were they hanging 13-year-old girls back in the 1790s? Well, for the case with with many people who were, um, certainly many, many people were being hanged in those days. And it wasn't just limited to adults and it wasn't just limited to women. But 
um, for people who seem to be worthy of it. However, the civil servant judged that. Um, many people's sentence, death sentence, was commuted to transportation. Now, transportation to New South Wales, to Sydney especially, was designed as um, as a safety catch, as a safety net, so that you know the aristocrats in the House of Lords didn't want to, you know, they wanted to be tough on crime, and so they wouldn't change the law to make horse stealing a lesser offence. But what the civil service could do, and what the Queen personally stepped in, and, or the King at, at this time personally stepped in and did, was they wrote up a list of names, and the Queen would give them a, um, a special pardon, and their sentence would be commuted to transportation. Transportation. So, at a very early age, her life was in the balance. You know, she'd lost her parents, she'd lost her grandmother. She, um, her aunts and uncles didn't want to know her. Um, they didn't want to have anything to do with her, even though they were, you know, a good Puritan family in the north of England. Um, they they didn't want anything to do with her, and so she was cast adrift. She um, was transported um, to Sydney and because she'd had some um, she'd been training to be a domestic servant she arrived in Sydney when she was 15 and she was assigned as was the custom as a nursemaid in a high-ranking military household in Sydney um, from there she uh, married when she was 17 she married an officer she'd met on the boat coming over um, he'd proposed several times already. I, I wonder what was going on there. Sometimes it's hard to read between the lines in these stories. But he had been very persistent, and she eventually accepted him when she was 17 years old. Um, and that's when her her life really changed tack. Right, so they went on to have a fairly substantial family, I understand, and settled in the Hawkesbury somewhere. That's right. Um, so from there, you know, Thomas Raby, her husband, was a trader with an eye for opportunity. So he dealt in all sorts of things in the new colony. Um, but he, um, so when they had seven children and numerous business concerns, and when Mary was in her thirties in um, in eighteen eleven, he died. He became ill and died. Um, now. Think of this: She was a single mum with seven kids in a rough, um, rough part of the world, um, where she had you know businesses that were absolutely dog eat dog. She was competing with um, Indian and Chinese concerns, and she was in this situation: a single mum with seven kids. What what was she supposed to do? Um. But it seems that she had good experience in business. Um, it seems that her husband Thomas had been had really brought her along for the ride in her, in his businesses, and she'd um, learnt how to run a business. She'd learnt how to do the paperwork. She'd been very involved. When Thomas would um, would uh, go away on trips to manage 
um, his, you know, go over to India to um, with his goods and, and so on, she would look after the business at home. And so she had a bit of experience and she took a risk and she was an astute businesswoman and she um, was determined to make a go of it. And apparently she did make a very good go of it um, and, 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 did, and, and was very successful. It seems that, all those, that she also liked to, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that she liked to, you know, put her past behind her and mm-hmm. kind of pretend like she'd never come to Australia as a convict. In fact, right. there's one story where she goes back to England, comes back to Australia, and thereafter says that she was she arrived in Australia as a free person, which That's is right. kind she of did. true and kind yes. of not. <laughs> yes, she she did have. Well, she um. Well, so it, as her as her business um, as her business has increased, she rose in Sydney society. And you know, people didn't ask, and she didn't tell. Um, and her husband was a free man, and so I think that gave her a lot of credence. Um, and so she, she really, um, because of her marriage, um, she got away with a lot. Really, she learned how to run a business, and her her past was easier to cover over. Um, she was good friends with Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who is known for um, wanting equal rights for ex-convicts. Um, so we're not sure how much that relationship played into um, her uh, hiding of her past. But yes, she did. Um, when, when, as her businesses grew, she uh, proved to be a great philanthropist. Um, she donated um, you know, thousands of pounds to charity, to the church, to um, charities like Carolyn Chisholm. And Carolyn Chisholm, we talked about a few months ago, who was a lady who looked after the single women who came over to Australia mm. and um, you know, didn't know what to do with themselves. She got them good jobs. She settled them down. Many of them married. So those were the kinds of concerns that uh, Mary, Mary was very, very keen on supporting. Um, she also was a great supporter of education. And through her, um, through her support of education and the church, the Anglican Church in particular in Sydney, um, but the church as a whole, she gained um, her reputation went before her. She wasn't just a CEO of a big corporation. She was um, she was a uh, a great moral standard, a great pillar for uh, morality in the church. Well, in the new colony. That's interesting you say that she supported the Anglican Church in Australia because you mentioned earlier that she came from, uh, you know, she had a Puritan background or a Puritan family. A Quaker. A Quaker family yeah. who, who that's right. know, kind of wanted to have nothing to do with her. 
Mm-hmm. Did she ever embrace the uh, the Quaker faith, or when she came to Australia, did she just adopt? You know, which was the, the primary religion that was in Australia at that time. Of course, was the Anglican mm-hmm. Church. Did she just mm-hmm. transfer across to the Anglican Church, and then as a result of that and her connection with that church, is that why she supported uh, that particular denomination, or was she just sort of broadly supportive across anybody who was doing good things? Yeah, she was pretty broadly supportive. Now, I. I can't imagine that she would have been very sympathetic to the Quakers because her aunts and uncles were very good Quaker members. Um, and, you know, her aunts and uncles had cast her off when she was a child. Now, she, when she went back to England, as you mentioned before, she met up with her cousins, and that seems to have been a very pleasant kind of encounter. But, um, I would have imagined with, you know, she was placed as a nurse into an officer's household. They would have been Anglican, um, 10 to 1. And so she would have, it would have been um, much, you know, very easy and, and sensible, practically speaking, for her to become an Anglican as a young woman. Um, she, however, was broadly supportive of um, Christian churches in general, which is interesting um, because this is something that we've we've seen a few times before that um, deeply religious Australian Christians of this period of colonial Australia tend to have a bit of a complex relationship with church institutions. Um, People like Banjo Patterson, who we don't think of as deeply religious, um, but clearly we see in his in his poems um, that he was very aware of the hypocrisy of the church, and it pained him deeply because he knew Christ, mm. and he knew that that was never how it was supposed to be, um, and so. Perhaps we see a bit of that going on as well. This is speculation, but you know, as as detectors into into the past, we need to look at what we have and look at the gaps and think hmm, what could fill those gaps. Yes, indeed, and of course, her uh, her oldest son, you know, went on to become a clergyman. You don't have a son who becomes a clergyman mm. without being a deeply spiritual parent yourself, typically. Right. That's yeah. um, that's typically what we would expect. A fascinating person and a pioneer here in Australia, a very strong woman and somebody who is doing th- exceptional things. Eliza Southwell, thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show. We look forward to catching up again next month. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.